you know something that I find um, interesting. Something that happens in our nation every four years. And when this event happens, it is extremely unique in world history. In fact, when this event happens, it's shocking in the eyes of most people in the world. What is that event? Well, every January, every four years, the sitting president will get into Air Force One helicopter, excuse me, Marine One helicopter, and will fly away from the White House. And a newly elected president will then move in and begin his leadership. That's rare. Because throughout world history, whenever someone's position of power or authority has ever been threatened, they respond with violence. We see this in the life of Pharaoh, who in in the book of Exodus is a man who had complete power and authority. But when he saw the people of Israel multiplying so large, he decided to enslave them and to slaughter Hebrew baby boys. We see this in the life of King Herod. When he discovered that there would be a king born six miles south of Jerusalem in a town called Bethlehem, he ordered the slaughter of baby boys two years and younger. You see, whenever someone's position of power and authority is, in, is um, influenced, it is in, in trouble, it's in scarcity, they respond with violence. Well, when we get to Acts 17, we see where the apostles of Jesus Christ are literally turning the world upside down. And the religious leaders who have power and authority, they get angry and they respond with violence. Why? It is because these apostles are turning the world upside down for King Jesus. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts 17. Acts 17. We're going through the book of Acts together as a faith family. And this week I tried counting up all of the messages that we have walked through as a faith family up until this point, and I lost count around 60. Okay, so we've been setting up camp in this great historical narrative for quite some time, but it's been amazing just to see the work of God in and through this amazing book that we're seeing the early church experience this explosive growth in the gospel and how the gospel is now expanding out to the nations. We've seen over the last three weeks how the gospel of Jesus Christ has landed now on European soil for the first time. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, they have gone into Philippi, preached the gospel, and planted a church. They've seen a cosmopolitan woman, a slave girl, and a Roman prisoner, um, uh, Roman prison leader, a protector, a jailer, come to Christ. And the first European church planted right there in the home of Lydia. What we saw in Philippi is that this mission team experienced an exorcism They experienced the wrath of a mob rising up against them, the scandal of the kangaroo court, a false imprisonment, an earthquake that opens prison doors, a rescued suicide attempt, and government leaders covering up their sins. You can't tell me the Bible's boring. After uh, Philippian politicians 
beg the apostles to leave the city. The mission team moves on to take the gospel of Jesus to a new people and a new city. And that's where we pick up now in Acts 17, beginning with verse 1. And the scripture says this. After they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too, and Jason has welcomed them. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The crowd and city officials who heard these things were upset. Well, after taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. As Paul and his mission team have left Philippi, they are heading west along the southern coast of Greece. They make their way into Thessalonica. And as was his habit, Paul began his ministry in a synagogue. Why did he do this? Well, I I put in your notes four reasons why he does this. The first is this, is access. Paul was Jewish. Therefore, he was welcomed in the synagogue. The second was authority. Paul was a former Pharisee. He knew the scriptures. He was a teacher of the law. He knew his Bible frontwards and backwards. The third is an audience. You see, Paul had a captive group to listen to the word. You see, it's hard to plant a church in a community when you don't have a relationship with people, when you walk in and don't know anybody. Well, Paul walked into this new city of Thessalonica and doesn't know anybody. So he goes to the place where he can find an audience. But the fourth is we see ambition. Paul had a desire to reach the Jews with the gospel. You get a glimpse into Paul's heart for the Jews in Romans chapter 9, verse 1, when he says, For I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish for my kinsmen according to the flesh. For it is my desire that I would even be willing to give up my own salvation so that they might be saved. You see, the heartbeat of Paul was so badly for the Jews to come to know Christ. He would say, I would be willing to give up my salvation and go to hell if it meant that they were saved. That's the heartbeat of Paul. With tears streaming down his cheeks, he had the white hot passion of an evangelist and he was broken over people who were far from God. My question to you is, who are you weeping over? Who in your life is far from God and you are pleading, you are begging for God to save them? Who is it in your life that you are weeping and longing for them to come to know Jesus? Oh, that God would give our church a heart to see people who are far from God come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Even to the point where we would pray, God, even if it meant I gave up my salvation so that they would be saved. 
Now, praise God, we can't lose our salvation. He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion in Jesus. We'll bring it to completion. There's a sense in which you can't lose what you didn't purchase on your own. But there's a sense in which the heart of having a desire of seeing people come to a saving knowledge of the truth, this was the heartbeat of Paul. This is why I love love studying his writings, because this was a man on a mission, because he remembered what it was like to be lost. He remembered what it was like to not have Jesus in his life. And so he had a desire to see people come to a saving knowledge of the truth. He wanted people to know Jesus. Well, for you and I, as we think about when we share the gospel with coworkers and teammates, friends and family, there's going to be one of two responses that we see even here in the text. The first response is this, is that the gospel will be accepted by some. The gospel will be accepted by some. In the Thessalonican synagogue, Paul was, verse 2, reasoning with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. Now remember at this point in Acts 17, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. And so as Paul is unpacking the scriptures, what scriptures is he using? The Old Testament. Paul's taking Genesis and Exodus and Jeremiah and the minor prophets. He's pointing to Daniel. And what is he doing? He's making a beeline to Christ. He's pointing Jesus in light of the Old Testament. That's what we see there in verse 3. He says, This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. He's taking the Old Testament and he's helping his hearers understand it in light of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And did you see what happened when the word of God was brought to bear upon the people in Thessalonica? Verse 4, salvation. Some were persuaded. A large number of God-fearing Greeks, that's Gentiles who converted to Judaism, who are now followers of Jesus, they're now followers of Christ and a number of the leading women. Church, this is why I believe in expositional preaching is that when you let the Word of God do the work, when you let the Word of God be brought to bear upon the people of God, that's when transformation happens. That when we let the Scriptures be taught in their original context, in light of Jesus Christ, and rightly applied to the people, it leads to salvation and the strengthening of God's people. Hear me, you don't need another TED Talk. You don't need a comedian or another entertainer. You need the pure milk of the Word of God. You need the Word of God to be brought to bear upon your heart and upon your life because the Word that God uses to transform your thinking, your feeling, and your living. We want the Word to do the work in and through us as a church. As Paul's going into Thessalonica, he's taking the Scriptures and he's bringing them to bear upon the people. And as they're hearing the word of God explained and applied in light of Jesus Christ, we see people coming to faith in Christ. Church, let us be this kind of people. A people who love the Bible. A people who love the book. 
people who fall in love with the scriptures. We're going to unpack this a little bit more next week when we get to Paul going into Berea. But for now, let's make no mistake, this is who we are to be, a people who never grow tired of hearing the good news of Jesus Christ and him crucified. You see, you and I are in danger of becoming so used to hearing the good news of Jesus that we kind of glaze over. May that never be the case. That the good news of a crucified Savior who came and gave his life for us at Calvary, that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins, that he was buried, but he doesn't stay dead. He's risen and ruling and reigning over all things. That anybody who turns from sin and trusts in Jesus Christ by faith, you are saved both now and forever. This is what Christ came to accomplish. And this Savior is soon coming to rescue his bride, the church, and to call us home forever. Let's never get tired of that. Let's be a people who are madly in love with Christ and we love his scriptures that are continuously driving us to Jesus. Paul is proving from the scriptures who Christ is and what he has done. And you see what happens when the gospel is brought to bear? People's lives change. Can I tell you a, a quick story uh, of something that happened right here on our campus? Uh, a couple of months ago, Rick Swing became burdened over uh, a deeper desire to reach people for Jesus. Rick is our executive pastor here at Westwood, just a phenomenal leader. And he said, God, would you give me a greater heart of reaching people? And that next Sunday, he's out in the atrium, and there's a gentleman who's walking around, and Rick kind of just caught his eye, and they began a conversation. And Rick felt compelled to ask him, hey, have you put your faith in Jesus? And this guy said, no, I haven't. And it was right there that Rick walked him through the gospel, led him to faith in Christ. For the past several weeks, they've been meeting at Chick-fil-A and memorizing scripture together, holding each other accountable. Rick is discipling this young man. Uh, next week, he's going to get baptized. And Rick has challenged him, hey, the first thing you're going to do after you're baptized, you're going to come out of the water and we're, I'm going to have you quote your first Bible memory verse to our entire church. This guy is on fire for Jesus. You see, regardless of the large group, small group, or over coffee, when you share the gospel, you have no idea what God's going to do. Here is Paul sharing the gospel with these Jews in the synagogue, and people are like, yes, I need Christ. I need Jesus. And transformation is taking place in their heart and life. We see a church that's planted in the house of Jason. We see where God is doing a new work in the Thessalonian church. Why? Because the gospel is preached. As you think about your life as a missionary, and if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a missionary. When you share Jesus with your coworkers and your teammates, God is going to take the gospel that you are sharing. He's going to take that message planted in their hearts, and that becomes the means through which someone comes to faith in Jesus. That's what happened to you. Whether you were in a church con congregation like this, or you were at vacation Bible school, or sitting down at the kitchen table with your parents, someone told you about Jesus, and transformation happened in your life. Well, you and I have an opportunity with our brief temporary lives until Jesus calls us home, opportunities to share Christ. Oh, that we would be messengers of the gospel who bring the good news of Jesus. And when you share Christ, there will be some who believe. Sadly, the opposite is true. The second thing we see in the text is that the gospel will be rejected by others. 
You see, not everyone responded with joy and gratitude to the apostles' preaching. We see it there in verse 5. The Jews became jealous and brought wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. The Jews in Thessalonica, who were in positions of religious power and authority, they were losing their influence. And so what did they do? They turned to bloodshed. They gather up town thugs and ruffians. And they do what they love to do. They cause a fight. They cause trouble. They head to Jason's house. Paul and Silas aren't there. So they drag Jason, who's a new believer from verse 4, and some church members out of the house and before the city officials. There they are in the marketplace before the magistrates, and these accusations just start flying over these men. Thankfully, the government officials did not respond in the same way that the Philippian magistrates did. But Jason had to put up a security bond, which was money he gave to the government, promising that he would not cause any more problems, which is why Paul and Silas, verse 10, will then leave in the middle of the night to protect the church. Well, for many of the Jews and the Gentile residents in Thessalonica, they rejected the gospel. They were against what these apostles were preaching. For the rest of our time together, I want to answer this question. Why? Why does the world reject the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, the Bible gives us many answers to that, and we don't have time to cover all of those. But for the sake of our time, I want to show you from the text three reasons the world rejects the gospel. The first reason is this. The gospel of Jesus is subversive and offensive to the world. It's subversive and offensive. Paul and his team are being accused of turning the world upside down. Which, by the way, that's a pretty accurate description of what the gospel does. I think the mob actually gets this one right. As they are rioting and screaming and bringing these accusations, they're saying these guys are turning the world upside down. Well, the gospel does turn the world upside down. The gospel does go against the grain of the culture. The gospel goes against the status quo. You see, when you put your faith in Jesus, when you jumped kingdoms from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son, you became an enemy of the world. No longer do you go with the path, with the stream of the world, believing what they believe, thinking the way that they think, living for the way they live, desiring what they desire. You now are swimming upstream in the opposite direction. It's much more difficult, much more painful, but this is the call of being a follower of Jesus in which we are denying ourselves, picking up our cross, and we are following Christ. That indeed wide is the road, And broad is the gate that leads to destruction, and many go through it, Jesus says. But small is the gate, narrow is the path that leads to life, and only a few find it. If you are going to be a follower of Jesus, we have to walk the narrow path. You have to be willing to go against the grain of the culture, go against the grain of the way the world is going. We are now followers of Jesus who go against what the rest of the world desires. We now are offensive to the world around us. And here's what Jesus said. In John 3, 18, Jesus says that the world hates the light and they have not understood it. Well, now as a follower of Jesus, the light of Christ in you is offensive to the world around you. 
The exclusive call that we must turn from our sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, that's offensive to the world. They don't want that. But that's the narrow road that Christ has called us to, to preach Christ. Question, are you okay being disliked? Are you okay being rejected? Is it okay if you don't get homecoming queen? Is it okay if you don't get that promotion at work? Is it okay with you to say, you know what? I'm okay not being popular if I'm going to be a passionate, faithful follower of Jesus. Hear me on this. You can't love Jesus and be loved by the world. The two are at odds with each other. That's what James 4 tells us. The world and God are at enmity with one another. There is a hatred that the world has towards God. And here's the thing. You have to choose. You have to choose. Will you choose the brief, temporary, vain applause of the world? Or do you desire the eternal celebration that comes with a Galilean accent saying, well done, good and faithful servant? You can't have both. Oh, that you would decide today, Jesus, I want your praise and adoration more than I want fame, more than I want popularity, more than I want money, more than I want athletic prowess, more than I want a promotion, more than I want a nice American dream. Jesus, I want you. Oh, that you would in your heart declare, Christ, you are my King and Lord, and everything in my life now revolves around you. And when you do, you become offensive. But it's also subversive to the world around us. We go against the grain, which is why we will be name-called and labeled intolerant, narrow-minded, bigoted. I've been called a Nazi before. This is part of being a faithful follower of Jesus. But we are not seeking the praise of man. We are a people who are seeking the praise of God whose praise will last forever and ever. But even while we're here in this world, we don't fight back with fists or with anger, but with compassion and love. Can I just tell you some cool things that I think is pretty amazing to me? In this very moment, this very second, there are followers of Jesus meeting in churches literally in almost every country of the world. Throughout the world, followers of Jesus are running hospitals, feeding programs, education, they're involved in governments. They are working for the good of the city. They're protecting children and widows and orphans. There are believers right now who are laboring all over the world, working for the good of the city, Jeremiah 29, that we are sojourners living in Babylon, working for the good of the city. And this is what believers do. And though the world despises us, we are still working to advance the kingdom of Christ. One of my favorite things as a pastor is I get a front row seat of seeing how the kingdom is breaking through all throughout our community through you. All these stories of how God is working in and through school systems and through classrooms and through businesses and through families and through athletics and through these businesses that are working for the sake of the cause of the gospel. It's amazing to me to see how God is working and the kingdom is breaking through. 
The kingdom, which is the rule and reign of Christ, in which the kingdom is already and not yet. The kingdom is here and the kingdom is coming. And God is working in and through his people. And what's happening in Acts 17 is we see the kingdom breaking into Thessalonica and the world despises it. But you see, when we are going to stand for Christ, we need to be prepared to be hated. The world will reject us because the world first rejected Jesus. That's what he told us. In John 15, Jesus says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. You see, Jesus was despised and rejected by the world, and so too, we too will be despised and rejected by the world. The world rejected Jesus all the way to murdering him on a bloodstained cross, but God raised him from the dead. He is the victorious one who calls those who follow him not to fight back with anger, with compassion and love in the same way that he has shown love towards us in the gospel. Beloved, we're a part of something bigger than ourselves and something that lasts longer than our brief temporary lives. We're going to be marginalized. You're going to be hated. But remember, you are not of this world anymore. The second reason we see in the text is that the gospel demands absolute allegiance to King Jesus in the world. What's the accusation being lobbed at the church? It's in verse 7. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king Jesus, again, the mob is getting this one right. That we are a people, followers of Christ, who are declaring there is another king. There is a greater king. He is the king of kings, and he is the one and only Jesus Christ. You see, in the Roman world, to declare that there is a king greater than Caesar was treason. To say Jesus is Lord is not just disloyalty, it's betrayal to Rome. Early believers were often persecuted because they refused to bow their knee or worship at an idol to the altar of Caesar. You see, this is what it means to be a follower of Christ is that we are a people who follow and obey our King Jesus first. Do you remember the accusations brought against Christ the night of his arrest? Before the Jewish Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the day, the accusation was this, blasphemy. He claims to be the Messiah. He claims to be the Son of God. He's claiming to be equal with God. So the accusation was blasphemy. But when Jesus was then taken to Pontius Pilate, they changed the accusation. They knew Pontius Pilate doesn't give a rip about Jewish law. They don't care that Jesus claims to be the Messiah. They, weren't, they, didn't, they knew he didn't care about that. So what did they do? They changed the accusation. In fact, in Luke 23, verse 2, they go to Pontius Pilate, and they say that this Jesus opposed paying taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is the Messiah, watch this, 
a king. As soon as they said that, he is a king, Pontius Pilate's eyebrows rose up. Excuse me? You're claiming to be greater than Caesar? You're claiming to be a king? You see, this governor in position of authority knew there could not be an uprising. Not on his watch. He had to stop this from happening. So there was this accusation made against Jesus. Blasphemy to the Jews. He's a king greater than Caesar to the Gentiles. And the reality is this. Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah, and He is the King over Caesar. Jesus is the King over all kings. He is the one who has authority over heaven and earth. Jesus is the one who rules and reigns over the cosmos, that every square inch belongs to Him of creation. It is all His. That the very creation itself is sustained by the word of His power, Hebrews 1.3. That Jesus is Lord over the cosmos, and He is the Lord over your life. The question is, are you submitting to His kingship? Have you submitted to his lordship over your life? See, unfortunately, there are some Christians who will say, well, Jesus can be my savior, but he cannot be my Lord. That's not New Testament. You can't say, man, Jesus saved me from my sins, but I can go live however I want to. Eh, Not possible. You can't say Jesus is my savior, but not my Lord. He's both or he's neither. To submit to Jesus as Lord says, I'm now going to allow Him to rule and reign over my life. You and I live in a southern culture where there are people who think that as long as I go to church and say I love Jesus, I can go live however I want to. If that is how you have lived, you're not a follower of Christ. Jesus demands absolute allegiance and obedience. You either belong to Him or you don't. And Jesus doesn't want a part of you. He doesn't want the Sunday morning you. He wants all of you in which you gladly and joyfully submit to his lordship over all of your life. What was being proclaimed about these apostles is that they're turning the world upside down. They're going against Caesar's decree saying that there's a king greater than Caesar. And this was shocking. How is that possible? Well, as followers of Jesus, we know why. It's because Jesus is indeed Lord over all. Hear me on this. Jesus deserves your absolute allegiance. Here's what it means. It means that your allegiance is not to a politician or to a political party. Your allegiance isn't to your business or your company first. Your allegiance isn't even first to your spouse or to your family. Your allegiance first is to King Jesus. We obey and submit and follow Him. The third reason people reject the gospel is that the gospel will make you hated and rejected by the world. Do you see the response of the Thessalonian crowd? Verse 8, there's turmoil, they're agitated. To claim that Jesus is king over your life and not Caesar. This was to have the will of the community and the neighbors around you to hate you. That's what's happening here. It means you're going to be unpopular. It means at school you're not going to be that popular if you're going to be a passionate follower of Jesus. You're just not. But here's the good news. You're going to have a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That though you may not get the promotion, 
You have a deeper walk with Christ, the one who will never leave you nor forsake you, the one who will never mock you, the one who will never make fun of you on social media, the one who's not going to gossip about you behind your back. You're going to have the best friend who's ever stuck by you. That as we sang earlier this morning, he is the fourth man in the fire. That even though you walk through difficulty and trial and pain, you have the Lord Jesus Christ who does not leave you for a second. He's yours. He's got you and you've got him. This week I was meeting with a man in our church who broke down in tears thinking about the days in which he was abandoned and rejected by so many people at school. And here he is in his 40s. And and with tears in his eyes, he talked about how Jesus was his friend. And he said, Kent, there's no more precious thing for me than knowing that Jesus is my friend. Because when I wasn't the most athletic, when I wasn't the most popular, when I wasn't the most attractive, I had Jesus. And Jesus was enough. And knowing that Jesus is the one who sticks closer than a brother, I want you to hear me on this. Jesus wants you. He wants you. Jesus does not need you. He wants you. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Oh, that today you would solidify in your heart these words. Jesus is my king. And it's amazing. This king loves his children. Tim Keller said it so well. The only one who has the audacity to wake up a king in the middle of the night is his children. And we have that kind of access. When I first became a believer at the age of 18... I wanted to change the world. And I thought, if I can just make a lot of money, and if I can get really powerful, I'm going to change the world. For Jesus, of course. (laughs) Little did I know. To turn the world upside down, you don't need power. You don't need money. You just need to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the impact point. This is what I want our church to walk away with today. It's this. Want to change the world? Preach the gospel. You have the ability, by God's grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of you, to change the world. How do you do it? You preach Christ. This week, at the end of my soccer practice, I gathered my team together. And I just sat down and I I said, guys, here's the thing. I want you to know I love you so much, but there's someone who loves you more and his name is Jesus. And he came and he gave his life for you at the cross. And you are so loved that even though your life is messed up apart from him, he still loves you and he invites you to himself. And I hope there's gonna come a point in time in your life in which you will trust in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And I prayed for him. And as I prayed for him, I just had this overwhelming sense of just brokenness and desire for these boys, these young men to come to faith in Christ. And as I looked across this circle of young men before me, I thought, there's future church planners right here. 
God, here are the men right here who are going to go change the world. God, would you do it? My question is, who are those people in your life? Who are the people in your life who are far from God, don't know Jesus yet, but through your witness, they're going to come to know Christ. And you can change the world if you'll preach the gospel.